0: Art Support, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC campus in Point Gray, Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm Jake Clark.
1: I'm Ileana Sosa. Uh,
0: it's a first-time correspondent on the show today here to talk to us. Well, the, well we're going to do a co-review of uh, the Texan trio at the Chan, but first... There's an event that you attended that uh, none of us were in attendance for, and that was?
1: Uh, I attended the Circle Craft Marketplace. It was a Christmas market that had a bunch of different kind of booths. like It had candles, uh, food, wine, um, and different things for different ages. They also had entertainment from the ballet group here in Vancouver that performed the Nutcracker that they were going to perform this Christmas. So oh, that delightful. was really interesting to see.
0: I love, uh, love Tchaikovsky, so that's... Uh... That's probably a great deal of fun. And how large was it? Where was it taking place?
1: It was at the Vancouver Convention Center on the west side. Um, it was pretty big. It was a lot of booths to take into account and a lot of booths I didn't think I saw a lot of. There was a lot of people were excited about uh, pickles that were happening. I couldn't find that booth. Well,
0: they can be good, but it's like, so it's not only just like a... Handy, it's handicraft sort of thing
1: yes there Um, were some new coming artists that were uh showing their works that were either uh stuffed uh rabbits or paints or stuff like that cool yeah so it was just it had a bunch of different types of things for like every age that you wanted to go see i mostly stayed at the food booths
0: but the taxidermy wasn't thrilling you
1: no (laughs) no not really Uh, I was more interested in buying cheese.
0: (laughs) That's fair enough. Like, that's one art form that I've always, you know, when you can see yourself doing various hobbies, you know, of variable artistic merit, you know, painting, drawing, amateur radio arts reviewing, uh, you know, you can say, oh, I do this painting, drawing, amateur radio arts reviewing in my spare time. And that would be like, okay, that's interesting. But taxidermy is one of those things. I do taxidermy on my spare time. That's like, no, that's you and Norman Bates. That's, that's not great company to be in necessarily.
1: Well, I'm from <laughs> Texas, so taxidermy is kind of
0: a big thing over there. Really? Have you, you ever taxidermic- Is that What's the verb for that? You ever taxidermicized anything?
1: No. No, but I do have a taxidermy deer head. Really? Yes. It's right in front of my dad's office, and it is terrifying to see at night.
0: That's, yeah, I got to say, you know, it's like, uh, well, the taxidermy deer heads. My thinking of Get Out now. With yeah. With that the deer head <laughs> and that, like, That's certainly quite the use for that deer's head. At least the deer finally got its own back there. I guess. When you, when you think about it that way. Yeah, and so, like, uh, you spent most of the time at the food booth. What did you pick up that you said you're very interested in cheese? What was the variety there?
1: There was so many different types of cheeses that you could do. I just got a regular goat cheese because that was simple, and I liked it, and it was cheap. Um, But uh, I tried some of the different kind of uh, alcohol that they had. A lot of people were excited about the gin and tonic that was being sold there and a lot of people were excited about this new type of light that was being implemented it was it was called the vancouver city lights i think oh, um really? yeah it was like very old style uh light bulb uh, attached to a block of wood
0: so were they? I, I gotta go back to the gin and tonic with that. Was it like a pre-bottled gin and tonic sort of thing? They, Cause I know people have made that in the past.
1: They, um, they had little cups that you could try the gin and tonic with. So oh. it was a nice little peek of it. They had a lot of a lot of booths had that where they gave you like a little sip of it and told you what kind of drinks that would go along with it. And most of these were uh, booths that did not have a specific. Uh, liquor store that was hosting the, their drinks. It was mostly online that they were doing it, and this uh, so is through their booths.
0: So they were sort of moonshiners a little bit. I guess. This could come into being, no judgment. <laughs> no judgment. That's, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun, though. It uh, certainly seems like a good way to spend like the afternoon. That Good date idea, kind of.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just so much fun checking out all the different types of things that were going on. You had a lot of entertainment, a lot of artists that were doing artwork there. There was a pottery um, potter who was doing his uh, doing the pots right there. As opposed to a
0: carpentry potter.
1: Of course. Who <laughs> <laughs> um, was doing his uh pottery right there, molding the pots that he was going to do. So that was really interesting. He very much engaged with the crowd, and that was like a really cool sight to see.
0: Was that a great part of the experience that these the creators could engage with the the people buying their work?
1: Yeah, I think that was a very huge focus. I think for the uh, people who were manning the booths, they very much mm. wanted to talk and making that kind of connection, especially in like a huge setting like that, is really, I think really good for the business as they're able to put like a face to it
0: that'd be interesting because well for the ridiculous darkness that's a little way down the line in this show but that's a little ways down the line in this show but yeah the ridiculous darkness also did that and wasn't quite the same idea <laughs> but speaking of shows we saw together we also saw the texas trio the oh, chan center
1: that was so good now
0: that was a lot of fun now the texas trio is well, the texas troubadours is ruthie foster uh jimmy dale gilmore and carrie rodriguez Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting show because the way the show was structured is they all sort of introduced themselves and then they, uh, they teamed up. Yeah,
1: that thing. was really interesting. I liked seeing them just doing like a solo thing, and then having just like a duo with the next person that was going to come on and do their own solo music.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, being as you are from Texas, did this did this hit any kind of a ner- any kind of a nerve there? Or did it feel? Oh like- yeah,
1: I definitely felt very homesick, and I very much really wanted to dance, but the kind of building was.
0: Yeah, see that that was one thing I kind of picked up on. It was a great show. There were three very talented and very different musicians. Uh but the venue did was not working in their favor.
1: Yeah, because... I mean with that kind of music that they were playing, like that type of like very much soul music and mm-hmm. it's it's Texas music. I mean, it's you wanna dance, you wanna have fun, and you wanna it's very much I think the setting would have been a little more better, maybe at, like outside probably but it is
0: cold so or even like like an indoor hall like someplace Mm. where there's not chairs in the center
1: yeah it was very much uh you would go see like kind of classical music for the for that sort of setting that you were in i mean it definitely didn't detract from the music but it was it i don't think i could have enjoyed it as much as i could have if I was sitting out and dancing to it.
0: Well, and they, they were all really great presenters. They delivered a great show, and Ruthie Foster in particular. So she her style is very much rooted in soul, rooted in gospel. So she was big on audience participation. Oh, yeah. And uh, she, she was kind of given a bit of a raw deal on that one because a lot of us were like, you and I were both doing a lot of belting. But <laughs> we were like, you know, this is the show we showed up for. I think a lot of other people in the audience were unsure about uh, that I got that general mood.
1: Yeah, I definitely felt that as well. They, I mean, with that sort of setting that you're in, you very much feel like you have to uh, act a certain way or listen to it a certain way. Uh, but, oh man, Ruthie was so good. She definitely... I th- yeah. I, she definitely brought like a huge life in it, and I think she definitely broke that kind of like um, standard sitting of how you're supposed to do in that sort of uh, setting, Which was so good.
0: Because her her style is extremely energetic, very, very soulful. Uh, And those vocals, she has a very powerful voice. And then you got like Jimmy Dale Gilmore, who has sort of that uh, Willie Nelson thing going on where he's got like that quakey tenor that's full of emotion.
1: Oh, yeah. That was definitely some like very like Texas... Uh, soul, like, very Texas blues sort of way. Like- yeah,
0: because he's from Lubbock, right? Which yeah, is where Buddy Holly know. and Joe Ellie, who he, ele, 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 that guy, are <laughs> are also from. And he jammed with uh, the latter. Um, yeah,
1: that was, oh, man.
0: So the, so the guy's the guy's a legend. Like, he's got the longest career of those there. And then Carrie um, uh, Rodriguez. She's, oh man she was a she, – because she's a conservatory educated and she so like they had her Ruthie Foster with the the booming gospel voice Jimmy Dale Gilmore with this sort of um, classical yeah country sort yeah. of tenor and then she had this really really polished really really very very lovely um, uh, I would say yeah uh, conservatory voice because she, she went to she studied uh, violin at a conservatory because she mm-hmm. played fiddle. And she calls her style Americana.
1: Yes, <laughs> I... Like I that. De- oh, man. I'm kind of partial to her because uh, that type of very, like, Hispanic music was definitely played a lot in my uh, household. So hearing her and then hearing English, the English words and the Spanish words together just was just so beautiful. Like, I loved it so much.
0: Because you're from San Antonio, right?
1: Yes, I am from San Antonio.
0: Is that... Um uh what i would say a very prevalent thing there the the uh fusion of american and latin culture
1: oh yes definitely uh, i mean we have the Tex-Mex food so oh
0: terrific example <laughs> it is delicious
1: it is thank you there's
0: there's a lot but there's this the huge variety in this like it's it's a one thing that did make me realize is texas is a big state and yeah it's a lot of different things like Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, all very different towns from each other. Like, and people who are actually from that area are like, don't oh, no shit, Casper. Content warning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, it's, it's interesting because, like, it is, Texas is such a big place. And, like, depending on where you go, you have, like, these little small towns and they're kind of their own sort of like culture to it and then you have like you have corpus christi which is like right on the water and so they're like food is very much different and like Mm. their leather and stuff like that it's 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 very big and it's very different all around depending on where you go
0: sounds like galveston is a lot more in common has probably more in common with baton rouge than it does with austin probably like yeah yeah i i've uh yeah it's that's it's interesting interesting thought and it does show you this really rich tradition Like Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the the roots of the music from Texas, like because I know like I know Bob Wills was from Texas, uh, and he's like that guy's influence goes to anybody who ever started a jam band because Bob Wills just like what kind of well we played just about everything really like he he, Bob Wills got thrown to the grand old Opry in '46 I think for using drums, (laughs) what what a time, huh? Uh, Then like then you got like of course you got Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, you got. um... A lot of, a lot of. Um, I think Wilson is Wilson Pickett from Texas.
1: I'm not sure
0: because uh, he's like he's like one of the classic souls. I think Carla Thomas is. Yeah, or, she, or no, she might be from Tennessee. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I gotta check that out. But there's a legacy, obviously, Buddy Holly. Um, yeah, and that legacy sort of definitely extends in this. If nothing else, like for those who would be unaware of the impact of it on on music that stands today, because all of these. Artists have similar but also very different styles,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: that was they were similar enough that they can jam together, but also distinctly that you felt like there were three facets of the same show.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think when they really came out on their best was them working all together. I think yeah. hearing them work, like hearing them individually, was amazing because you got to see their different styles, but seeing those styles come together. And that, like, one huge group was just – that, I think, was, like, the peak of the performance.
0: Because it, it'd be it, – when that happened, it usually be Jimmy Dale on, on guitar, Ruthie mm-hmm. Foster doing the lead vocals, uh, and Carrie Rodriguez did the bridge on the on the fiddle.
1: Yeah. She was a mad fiddle player. And they
0: came together like that. She's, she's got chops. Like, that definitely honed her skill very well. And that's, like – honestly, like, I, I really respected them for, for – this is their first show, and they – gelled incredibly well
1: yeah it was
0: beautiful set of songs
1: i was surprised that this was their first time
0: did did, did you have a favorite from the the set list at all or
1: oh man um anytime career rodriguez sang i was just like in love um
0: the uh, because the the first uh one uh uh, what a way to lose it was uh, this title was in spanish was like Mm. a really sad song She's described it as, like, it's like one of those Merle Haggard songs that keeps you up drinking and drinking. And I, I think I turned to you at that point. I'm like, that's all of the Merle Haggard songs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think also a huge um, fan. the last time, which was in Spanish, yeah. like, the first song she played, I she just sold me right there. I was just like, I love this. I think she – her blending was really good, but I think um, Dale Gilmore's – the way that he does his lyrics –
0: well, he made the joke that his best songs are written by uh, another fella. Uh, he, he did make that joke a lot, but <laughs> I think my favorite song from him was the one he... Uh, Rich Hancock is the other guy. Um, but he ended with, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own, which, that was a funny song. I think my favorite one from him was uh, Another Colorado, because that is this great lyric. I took a pillar for a sign that the salt of the earth could be mine, which is... I, maybe I read too much into that, but there's not only the great use of that, but the biblical reference in there is a mm-hmm. great lyric. It works really well.
1: I think for me, it was, I don't know if we got the title of it, but uh, You're Just a Wave, Not the Water. Oh, yeah. That,
0: that, that was, was
1: my favorite.
0: That was heartbreaking. It kind of was. This was an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> it really was. You
1: know, you got like some like really uh, kind of sadish tones, but also it seemed lighthearted oh. hearted with Rodriguez in a way.
0: And with with whenever Ruthie Foster though, whenever she got the the oh, yeah. gospel songs, like there's a hole in my pocket where it all. Like, with the the part like this, they're triumphant because they're boom. They've got this. They they echo. They're they're designed to fill a church.
1: Yeah, it's that one was my favorite actually i loved that one the and that was um uh, and also i love the one for her mother
0: yeah that she did oh, that, 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 that
1: was delightful. beautiful
0: their patter was really good too with <laughs> jimmy dale gilmore's story about les paul i kind of liked. oh my god uh, yes. but also he he described the fact that one of his songs is rooted in a digression in a story that is itself a digression that mm-hmm. was that was funny yeah, I, I I do like like check out all of these artists. They're they're definitely worth a listen. I think uh, Cara Rodriguez was in Rolling Stone a little while ago for new country albums. Jimmy Dale Gilmore's I think still kicked. Ruthie Foster I think just released an album. Yeah, if I'm correct. So certainly so. certainly that and the Chans keeping up some uh, keeping up some events in the future. So keep uh, keep your finger on that particular pulse. The kind of point transition here I want to make is that. Ruthie Foster really wanted audience participation, and she didn't quite get it. If she had the audience from Wives and Daughters, she would have been v- a very happy woman. Okay, so I saw so Wives and Daughters was on, I saw the opening of it. And uh, for one thing, so we interviewed Jacqueline Ferkins on the show. Yeah. And she explained to us sort of the adaptational process of how this show came to be. Uh, it's based on a novel by Elizabeth Gaskell, who was sort of is not very well known, but she's a contemporary of the Bronte sisters of Jane Austen, and uh, so it is what you think it is. I want to make that point right off the bat. It's uh, it's not bad in that regard, but if you don't like Victorian novels, it's not going to change your mind. Oh, okay. And the um, the cast of it, I want to say was very solid. And this was a very performance-driven thing. Um, I was actually surprised it was less of a script-centric one and more of a, I, I understand that those things are gestalt, that mm-hmm. you can't have really... One without the other would be like having muscle without a backbone. But the performances really drove this one. Um, in particular, um, the lead uh, of the show is Sabrina Villani playing Molly Gibson. was She's very strong because... She has a very uh, she's very good, dry sense of humor. And her character has occasional moments of this character is a mixture, has a mixture of uh, not necessarily naivete, but she's certainly a character who's going through a coming of age. And mm-hmm. a very dry and honest humor. And that's the point is that her character is honest to the point of less than tact. tact less than tactful. Less than tact, my ska band. <laughs> Actually, my name is Jake. So, <laughs> when it comes down to that, but um, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, uh, the also her father is played by Jed Weiss, who was in Love and Information. They were both in uh, the productions last year. There was a lot of people in here from um, uh, the, the Lebel Sur, mm-hmm. but Jed Weiss, he was in Love and Information last year, and uh, so he plays her father, and uh, he's he's a big, tall guy. He's a man with the approximate dimensions of a refrigerator, and. He plays um, the dad. I got a kick out of him every time he was on stage because he plays the father as Jason Siegel <laughs> from How I Met Your Mother. Or just, or just that's Jason Siegel in general. Like, it's just oh sort of this, okay, like, very chummy straight man thing. Occasionally just flabbergasted that the people around him keep talking. Because, so, the, the plot gets kicked off when he marries Hyacinth Kirkpatrick, who's a very fashionable woman. Also a little grating... Uh, very much centered on, very socially ambitious, very centered on um, being in the fashion. So, when she comes around, the the show takes a certain direction. Like, it takes the, the direction it's going to it's going to go on. But then her daughter, uh, Cynthia, played by Daria Banu, shows up. And Cynthia's like a wild child. And the drama in the show comes from her. And that character, I, I want to say, like... Um, uh, Dari did fine with it, but the character comes off a little one note. Um, mm-hmm. and especially, uh, the, uh, and her main issue is, or, uh, well, actually, is a series of engagements. Uh, one of which is with Roger, who is the main love interest, who's a young fellow fascinated with science.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, he's
0: an aspiring biologist. Um, and uh, he, uh, he's played by Lewis Lin. And um, I, I do want to say that uh, they try – he doesn't get a good, in, terribly good introduction as a character. I think that um, some of the, the, um, the, the tone of the story really goes towards setting him up as a, as, a, as a boy next door. But there's also an equal amount of time devoted to calling him boring. And the script doesn't disprove that. Oh, no. So it, it, Lin kind of gets – he gets a bit of a raw deal. With where he's aiming at with that, and and he just uh, it, it um kind of comes off a little weak there. Not bad, but yeah. And Molly and he are they're they're friends, and she grows enamored with him, but he's very much taken with Cynthia. And she's like, "You love me?" Oh yes, I love you as a sister. Just you know, like okay, that's where we're at. Uh. Now Cynthia however has a past with Mr Preston. I would say that there's something notable about him being a mister but the doctor in this play is, also has the title of mister so the only indicator that he's not a respectable person is that people continue pointing that out. Um, and he's played by Aiden Wright who's he's pretty damn charming and I should mention that the various characters do interludes with instruments so he is one he shows up with a violin. Uh, oh, not wow. not in character, oh, okay. but uh, sort of to play transitions through the scenes. And uh, Jed is a guitar, and Shauna, not Shauna Struthers, um, Olivia Lang, who plays Lady Harriet, plays the piano. Uh, Lady Harriet is Mr. Preston's employer. He's a groundskeeper. And some years back, which would have been, this is where it gets really questionable, when um, Cynthia was in her teens, uh, Mr. Preston uh, wooed her, as it were. Let's leave it at that. And has love letters that prove their correspondence.
1: Ooh. So
0: he's hanging that over her head unless she agrees to marry him.
1: Oh dang. Uh,
0: and this, so this is kind of a sleazy character. He's He is a sleazy character. He's the villain. Now the uh, what I mentioned about audience participation, every single joke in this and some non-jokes were received uproariously by the audience. There was one guy in the back who loudly and explicitly cheered for Mr. Preston whenever he was there, including after the point where he was revealed to be not just, not more a creep than a charmer. And just, it was awkward because it'd be just one guy. I was way in the, the left side of the theater, so he was right behind me, not like a few rows behind me. And he'd go, yeah! Like just every time he had sort of a victory, he got the upper hand. And I was like, no, no. Don't, this don't is, do this. This is a bad thing. This is extremely questionable. Um, and they, um, the shenanigans ensue. It, it's, it's, it is, it's, again, it is what you think it is. I, I do want to also mention um, the Mrs. Brownings, which are Phoebe and Dorothy played by Shauna Struthers and Heidi DeMeo, respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're sort of the Greek chorus, Sort of. There are two spinster characters who um, uh, sort of they do move the plot forward, and they're fun characters. They they have a great bit of physical comedy in the second act involving eavesdropping, um, and they like I they don't seem to they sort of just hang around in the first act, but they do come around, and they're very entertaining. Like they uh, they move like have great in sync movements, great dialogue. A lot of the people in this play have great chemistry with each other. And the, it, it's certainly a good it's, – it, it's a good show centering around two themes, which are flowers and truth. And that is – that's also reflected in the backdrop. It, uh, it runs the 25th at um, – <clears throat> sorry, at the Freddie Wood – sorry, my throat's a little, little torn up. These days, yeah, maybe we should stop yelling into a microphone all the time. (laughs) Yeah, um, check it out if you if you liked if you're a Jane Austen fan, you'll get something out of this. If you if you're interested in in those novels, this in my this is an easier show to stomach in terms of theme than Wuthering Heights. I realize that may not be saying much, but. this is uh yeah if you if you like Victorian novels if you like the fiction from that period you'll get something out of this if not it probably won't change your mind.
1: I definitely felt it was a Victorian novel especially with all the names that were coming out. I was like okay they're with this guy and this guy's with him and
0: yeah it's like I. I I, I sound like I overcomplicated that a little bit because this is it is a pretty si- it is a pretty simple uh, arrangement between the characters.
1: Yeah, but it's it's seeing it and then hearing it is kind of.
0: I have to rechase all the genealogies <laughs> here. It's like I oh mean, god, it's like Lord of the Rings is appendices. Uh, no, I mean that's what comes with a Victorian novel. Well, it's true, you know, and it's, it's about with these um, novels like Jane Austen. You know, it's about the relationships between characters that kind of form a little web. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in that light, and that's um. I got something out of this. I like that. If you like it, you'll get something out of it, too. Okay, we're going to have a slightly delayed word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we're going to talk about UBC Musical Theatres before we go. It shall be a fun production. Uh, Just a minute. And here we go.
2: Howdy, almighty Samurai Tyrone here. I want to tell you to listen to my favorite show, Spicy Boys, Wednesday at 12 a.m. <laughs> Unless you are me, then please leave.
1: Hi, it's Lewis Crochu, one of the hosts of the show. I gotta say, this is a good one. Wow, I
0: give it the Lewis Crow seal of approval. Thumbs up, great job. At CITR 101.9 FM. We don't need to tell you that Vancouver has a housing problem.
2: Mass evictions. Mass rent evictions.
3: Unfair rent increases.
2: What happened to rent control and protection from unfair eviction? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love.
1: Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theater, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there.
2: For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theater, visit their website at www.riotheater.ca.
0: Ah, the Rio. It's nice that they play it out with a little bit of ragtime. You know, before we go into it, I do want to mention this. I I saw Streets of Fire at the Rio uh, last Friday at 11.30. And 11.30 at night. 11.30 showing. Was it good? Yeah. So, Streets of Fire is a movie I really like. Uh, It's also a movie. So, this was one that also had audience participation, as long as we're on that. um, Because Streets of Fire is not a good movie. It's not, in my opinion, a bad movie. It's a really weird and very flawed movie. The plot of it is you have uh, a rock star played by Diane Lane, Ellen Aime. Uh, this is made in the 80s, 82, okay. And uh, by the way. And um, she gets abducted by a gang of bikers at a show. One of the bikers is played by Willem Dafoe, by the way.
1: Whoa, what? Yeah.
0: Raven Shattuck is his name.
1: Oh, that's such a good name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, Willem Dafoe all over the place for most of it. Like, it's, it's, it is him. Uh, so her manager, Rick Moranis, well, actually, he doesn't do this, but... A girl in the show calls her brother Tom Cody, who's a mercenary. He used to be in the army. Uh, he played by Michael Paré, who can't act uh, at all—not um, while he's speaking, anyway—to uh, come in and help the manager, Billy Fish, played by Rick Moranis. Yeah, uh, Rick Moranis. Yeah, uh, seeking people who—it's weird that they recorded a country album. I'm not kidding. Rick Moranis did that, uh, but. Help him recover Ellen. Oh, also he has a sidekick. He named uh, McCoy, played by Amy Madigan, who was originally written as a dude, and her lines weren't really changed because Amy Madigan's a really good actor. Hmm. Um. He's married Ed Harris, I think. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. More you know, right? Um, The Streets of Fire is a movie that has a really good soundtrack, really interesting visuals. And really weird really weird writing choices and really questionable performances. Like, the thing about uh, Streets of Fire is that Michael Paré, not a good actor. He's not a, like, this is, he's, he, like, he was in, he, you'll see him in things from time to time, usually in supporting roles. But he ended up in the cutting room floor in an Uwe Boll movie that's yeah yeah that that one uh the the far cry movie he was like the newspaper editor and almost he was third build but he's only in the movie for like five minutes he doesn't have star power he was cut but um dang i I sound really acerbic to the guy i'm 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 not i don't i don't hate him as an actor he's just not lead actor material like you want to see a good michael prairie performance he's great in the virgin suicides where he's old trip fontaine older older he's like his 40s but He's that. that's a good role for him. But he he looks the part, he just can't act the part. So he's kind of given more dialogue than he needs to. Oh, all the dialogue in Streets of Fire, by the way, is cartoonishly badass. Like, cartoonishly tough guy dialogue. Like, hard-boiled dialogue, really. And Amy Madigan pulls it off. Rick Moranis pulls it off half the time, which is amazing. Michael Perret doesn't. And sadly enough, Diane Lane really doesn't. Because Diane Lane is... I've, I've seen her tender, good performances, and she does really well as Ellen Aim. She's got, like, a really good... She she lip-syncs for her songs for the movie, but she's it's really good lip-syncing. Speaking of really good lip-syncing, Michael Perrette was is also good at lip-syncing because he was in Eddie and the Cruisers. He was Eddie and the Cruisers. Um, But Streets of Fire is worth watching, and I, I'd recommend it in a theater, certainly, but just watch it alone because it's a movie that has to be seen to be believed. It's... Just a, a, a bunch of weird, not necessarily bad, but probably not good decisions. It is also, I do want to say this, probably one of the more cartoonishly sexist movies put on screen. It's not... Like, this is a movie that has a lot of questionable stuff coming from that, mostly just because it has a model of gender roles appropriate to tough guy films, westerns mostly. Walter Hill loves westerns, by oh, okay. the way. Every movie he's made has been a western, according to him, Uh, from the 50s. So this is not... I wouldn't say the most progressive movie out there. If you go into it knowing that, you won't be taken aback by it. Not really. Like, it's not more sexist than the average action movie made in the 50s. It just wears it on its sleeve more.
1: So it's like, um, it's bad, so bad, it's good?
0: No, no, like, the good parts of it are legitimately really good. Like, this is something I want to say. The soundtrack, you get it on iTunes, it's great. It's, it's, It's all great songs in a bunch of different genres. Fire Incorporated... Um, The Blasters, The Fix puts a tune on the soundtrack, Marilyn Martin in a surprisingly non-Christian rock turn, thank God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Streets of Fire, though, people did comment on it during the movie, and they are like, no, don't do that! Basically, whenever Ella Ellen is torn between Tom and Billy, uh, because she's also dating Billy, um... No, it's not really a clear-cut decision. Like Tom's kind of a going nowhere character, <laughs> and this point is made pretty clear too by the film. He's just the guy with the gun. <laughs> is uh, the movies Walter Hill give him credit is a man of great clarity when it comes to that. So when it came to when it came to putting Streets of Fire together, he made the action hero like Tom Cody's not a particularly smart, sophisticated or like. Generally, even necessarily likable character, but he's the person you need for that situation. Both in terms of the film itself, and in terms of like, if you were Billy Fish, you'd probably want Tom Cody there with a shotgun to help you out. Um, so that's the way the movie goes, and it kind of fits that like the it's the kind of movie that you benefit from seeing at a venue like the Rio.
1: Yeah, I think it sounds like definitely like a huge part of it was the participation, like just hearing people yell at the screen, being like, "Don't do that!"
0: It's like, "Oh, that was a bad idea." And like a bunch of the time when Willem Dafoe had lines, what? Because <laughs> the way he was the way he was dressed in this, like, because he's Willem Dafoe, right? He's paler than rice paper, oh, uh, God. clad head to toe in black leather, like. And there's the climax of this movie is him dueling Michael Perret with a sle- with sledgehammers. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> it's it's one of those things that yeah, it's it, it's kind of awesome. It's just it's just kind of amazing to watch in that people made this artistic decision and ran with it. Also, Bill Paxton is in the movie, and I feel like it's relevant to note. Um, Bill Paxton and Rick Moranis in this movie play respectively uh, Clyde the bartender and Billy Fish. I mentioned this with Billy fish before they're both losers to illustrate. Well, sort of loser. Billy fish is like, he's, he's going to, he's going to make a lot of money, but bill Paxton is Clyde, the bartender. Yeah. He's a goof. Um, these characters, respectively, a loser bartender and a pushy loudmouth nerd are both badass. Billy fish is able to mouth off to corrupt cops and bikers because he has the will, the, the wherewithal to do it. Bill Paxton is, in the end, like, Clyde runs off when he thinks the bikers are going to swarm the uh, neighborhood and there's, like, five cops. So he gets about 200 people all with shotguns. He's from Texas. I guess, I guess you know. You
1: can get guns easy.
0: That'd be, like, just going around the block in Dallas. <laughs> hey, guys, just down the corner. Bring all your weapons. All of them? I don't think I can carry them. Okay, just your favorite. <laughs> and, that, that, like, that's the universe Streets of Fire is set in. And it's worth watching for that.
1: That sounds really yeah. interesting. I haven't really watched any movies lately, so I'll definitely take this into account.
0: Yeah, you can probably find it online. If it could be on Netflix, I really don't know.
1: Netflix has know. some bad movies and some good ones, so maybe they'll have it.
0: What's well, like good, bad? If it's entertaining, it passes muster. That's sort of the the aim of um, of sort of watching a movie, like like uh, with I don't know, like. When you think of, what's a movie that really incorporates a great soundtrack to you?
1: Hmm. Uh, I don't really know. Oh, Pan's Labyrinth. Already.
0: Pan's Labyrinth, eh?
1: I used to listen to that soundtrack all the time when I was little. I would listen to it when I was showering. I'd listen to it when I was studying. I just couldn't stop playing it.
0: Huh. That's that's interesting, because I... I, I, who composed that soundtrack? I feel like I read about this somewhere, but I can't remember where.
1: I it's been so long since I've heard the Man's Labyrinth soundtrack. All I just remember is just being very much obsessed with it.
0: Because like uh, Streets of Fire, as Streets of Fire has a bunch of great songs that the, sound, the soundtrack's by Rye Cooter, by mm-hmm. the way. Who's a, he's a, like a musician's musician. He's kind of a legend. Like he, the songs work so well with the universe; they work better than the actors do <laughs> to have synchronicity with it. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of another good one that has something that just integrated to it that way. I guess um, one good example. I Morricone does, did, did that really well, even when he scored bad movies, because he scored some weird ones. Remember Jimmy Page, the soundtrack for Death Wish 2?
1: Oh, my God. It <laughs> wasn't d- good. No. 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 But I think with any kind of, like, fighting movie or any, like, movie that is centered around action, the soundtrack has to be good.
0: Well, it's it's one of those things, right? When you take away the music, it looks weird.
1: Yeah, that's true. You mm-hmm. don't want to just see some like hear the grunting noises. It's awkward, like...
0: like a bunch of sweaty guys beating the crap out of each other. Like
1: you're just like, mm, I don't know if this is the type of sound that I'm looking for. The in this Foley action. guys punching
0: so much beef because <laughs> that's what you got to do, right? For fight scenes, for Foley artists, they punch a side of beef or something.
1: Yeah, to, to get, get ready. The,
0: to get, no, no, to get the sound.
1: To get the sound.
0: Foley artists are people who like dub in the sounds oh. of things. Uh, Like, so they, like, will, like, take a uh, side of beef and just hit it because you're hitting flesh, right? Yeah. I guess pork would be most similar to human flesh, but beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. Whatever's cheaper. That was an odd digression. We didn't get around to before we go, did we? Well, a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll really get back to before we go. Uh, Yeah, that was totally intentional. You're listening to CITR 101.9 broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the
2: Honkaminem-speaking Musqueam people. Every day, trans folks are targeted for verbal, sexual and violent harassment, and trans women of color and folks with disabilities are targeted even more disproportionately. The trans community is four times more likely than their cis peers to experience suicidal thoughts with about 20% of trans folks attempting suicide in the last year in Canada alone. Between October 1st, 2016 and September 30th, 2017 there have been 325 reported killings of trans and gender diverse people worldwide. Many of these instances are unresolved and this statistic does not include unreported cases. However, this violence is often forgotten and ignored by mainstream media. The Transgender Day of Remembrance happens annually on November 20th and is an opportunity to raise awareness and mourn the loss of trans folks all over the world. Come out Monday November 20th to the Carnegie Hall Community Center for a vigil and memorial from 7 30 to 9
0: 30 p.m. Was that the one who thought the beat on that PSA sounded like uh, 3005 Childish Cambina? Ooh. No, I was, uh, maybe. Meh, maybe no. that's just me. Not something probably I to think about. Anyway, in studio <laughs> with us is uh, Anne Herandia from the Players Club. Out it.
3: Musical theater troupe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's nice. Close good, enough. <laughs> they both do plays.
3: Uh, we also sing and dance.
0: And that too, <laughs> in the plays. Yes. 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 So, sorry. That that was totally intentional. It mean, <laughs> was also. This is the very intentional show today. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you're here to talk about
3: our fall production. Before we go. Awesome. Yeah.
0: And that's on. Uh, just let, let's get the preliminaries right here. Um sure. uh, Where, where, and when can we see it?
3: Uh, we are performing this weekend, November 18th and 19th. Our shows are at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. on both days. And we will be performing at the Norman Rothstein Theater on 41st and Oak.
0: Excellent. Uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's 41 bus right down a mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. Boogaloo. So, now, Before We Go was written by uh, Sebastian uh Co-Mendoza, who he directed me last year in, in Dionysia. Oh. So, cool. he, uh, yeah, he, oh, he told me about this, I thought. Uh, he told me about this, sort of the idea for this. Around that time, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I did, and I didn't think that much about it. And then, we talk, well, and then when I saw the thing, I thought, wait a second. <laughs> What's it about exactly?
3: Uh, so Before We Go is about a group of terminy, terminal, eh, terminally ill hospice patients. Um, so they're ranging in age from, for example, my character's 12 years old. One of the characters is like 90 years old. It's just every age in between. And we're all just uh, bonding together through music because we form a choir.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's, he wrote most of the songs for it, right? Yes. And uh, would you say, because it, it is very much, well, it's a, it's a musical. No, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, as a musical, is it like a Broadway musical, or is it more like one of these alternative musicals that's sort of coming up, like Heather's Dear Evan Hansen? Because I get that those are Broadway musicals, but those are yeah. very...
3: They're very new so and they're very modern. Um, well, we do have a good mix of quite new and modern songs written by Sebastian and William Beltran as well, who's also in our club. But we also have a lot Mine of Geoff-
0: Will- <laughs> William Chaffee <Yeah. laughs> uh, from, from William Curtains Bo- last yes.
3: year. Yes, uh, he was Chaffee. Um, but we also have a bunch of uh, a bunch of songs from classic musicals like Oliver. Um, so I think it's 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 really a good mix of both modern Broadway and uh, traditional Broadway.
0: And uh, you have the, there's a, a trailer sort of for it. Yes. Uh, which is a hilarious video. Thank you. Way, <laughs> with, um, with, uh, with Elliot Spilsbury. I think he, he's playing Frank, right? Um, no, no, no. It's, uh, it's. Kevin. Kevin. Yes. is playing Frank. Sorry. I, um, and it's, it's an ad for the, uh, the, the convalescing home. Yes. It's, and it's got this very dark, but very quick comedy. Would mm. you say that characterizes the show?
3: um very much so because uh so the character that you see featured in the trailer that's his name is Frank Irkins, he's played by Oliver Spellsbury who is right. <laughs> who is Elliot's younger brother um he's the owner of the Frank is the owner of the hospice, and it's failing quite miserably and so he, uh Frank is stuck um between uh, oh do i uh I guess do, do I like save all these all these people or you know do I just move on to the next thing do I move past this and try and try to do something else It's
0: like he's on the sinking ship right cuz they yes. uh, in in the in the background like he's like it's a peaceful home while well, he's fighting a staff <laughs> member with a bru- with a mop yeah. his dad gives this begrudging uh, like yeah it's a great time I'm going out mm-hmm. for a smoke you have lung cancer <laughs>
3: Yeah, it, so it's...
0: That got me. I cracked up with that one.
3: Yay, thank you. <laughs> we actually filmed that trailer, like, within an hour in, like, Walter Gage residence. It was it was quite a time because I guess Gage kind of looks... Sort of looks like a hospice. It does. <laughs> like,
0: Gage, Gage certainly does look like something where morbidity is expected. Yeah. yeah. No offense to anyone who lives in Gage, but, you know. <laughs> oh.
3: It's okay. So I think that too. Correct. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I I used to live in Ponderosa. That was that was, that was delightful. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So and uh, with this sort of tone, I, I guess I gotta ask: was there any que- was there any sort of content in this where you're like, this is too dark for the show, or is there anything that's sort of it's a joke but it becomes dramatic?
3: Um. Well, the thing with the thing with uh, I guess Sebastian's sense of humor is that it's. I, I think it's be- beautifully encapsulated in the play, and we have had to make some changes. Where it's not necessarily this is too dark, but um, it it might not, I guess it might not tra- translate very well to the to our potential audiences. Um, but it, I don't I don't think it's too dark at all. I think it's just depressing um, some some moments. But with the music that Sebastian and William wrote, it like. Yes, the story is depressing, but with the music it just tur- it just makes it a little more uplifting, a little less depressing because the residents of the hospice do bond through music.
0: Is it sort of the thing that they being aware of this, they have to find some means of dealing with it? Is that part of the theme of the play?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, these these characters they're they're not perfect at all and they're dealing with it very very differently. Um and the beautiful thing is that they do bond over music, and they and they want to and they want to make something meaningful before before they go.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's right <laughs> in the title there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the the logo for this, sort of the sign on the thing, is a uh, it's an uh, cardiograph, right? Electric yes. cardiograph. Yes. Now, does that does that sign ever crop up? I have to ask. Like, do they ever oh. use that? Like the beeping sound? I was wondering about that. Like, <laughs> well, I heard it in the trailer, but no, it's my tinnitus. Uh, <laughs> um. That's a really weird and specific question. Yeah, it's like, I mean, how many buttons are on Elliot's shirt? I oh, need wow. to know. Don't <laughs> ask why.
3: Um, I, I don't think it really comes up in the show because uh, I mean, I I designed I actually designed the logo over the summer Ooh, uh, before I'd actually read the play, and so I just I just knew about the premise, and I was like, okay, so we're combining music and the theme of like life and death. Um, I had no idea how it was going to be incorporated in the show, so. <laughs>
0: yeah no it works like, it could have been worse you could have had like a dancing skull like something like
3: yeah. like a like a dia
0: de los muertos poster like oh jeez well that's a little tonally off but okay yeah
3: um uh, yeah although
0: oh, no candy skulls candy skulls so is there any sort of um sort of story from production or any little moment of this that you'd like to share with uh anyone like sort of any cell for that
3: could you, could you be, like, a little more specific? I probably should be, yes. <laughs> I
0: tried. I, I worded that very badly. I speaks odd sometimes. <laughs> it happens. And I am totally not an answering service forwarded to this radio show because Jake is a lazy twit. <laughs> and, no, I meant, like, um, is there any sort of, like, uh, fun, like, like, is there, like, an inside joke for the production or any sort of little behind-the-scenes thing you'd like to share with us?
3: Um, so, oh, okay, so one of, I guess one of the little inside, biggest inside jokes that we have is Beans on Toast, which is the opening number of the show, and, um, I'm not gonna sing it for you guys right now, because that's, <laughs> that would be, you have to see the show for that. I'll sing it for you, Beans <laughs> on Toast, ah! <laughs>
0: Okay, I get it, I get it, I get it now, okay, I won't do that again. Uh,
3: okay, you can, you can sing along with me. Beans totally. on I mean, Toast. You want to try that? Yeah. Beans, beans on, on toast.
0: Beans on
3: toast.
1: <laughs> Someone's a little prima donna here.
3: That's all right. So, yeah, it is one of the opening numbers of the show, and that's why we have cast beans and cast toast. We kind of just made that little dichotomy. Uh, you're either beans or you're, um, or you're toast. So I guess that's one of the inside jokes. I'm sorry. I didn't explain that very well, but we. I guess one of the memes that came out of the show was like, we made little variations of beans on toast. So uh, one of them would be bees on toes. Toes? Um, bees on toast. Bees, bees <laughs> that, on toes. Um, me memes on toast. Uh teens on boats. <laughs> I, well. <laughs> if you can come up if you can come up with any other variations. Yeah, yeah, don't of beans don't
0: Google toast. that by the way.
3: Oh, teens on boats. Oh no. no. Oh, noted. Okay. No, that's that's a little <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, that, that, that's interesting. Like that's because that, that's like that's like British student food, but that'll also yeah. be like sort of hospice food I yeah guess. I guess if you know the things going under you gotta get something cheap well yeah. beans toast will keep you alive well, for how much longer yeah <laughs> alright so uh, Norman Rothstein Theatre mm-hmm. this very weekend yes um, come out to see it any, any last words for our audience
3: um Come get your tickets before they go.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, w- it was great to have you here, Ann.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: And, yeah. and we're just going to have a really quick word from our sponsor yet again before we talk briefly about the ridiculous darkness. All right. Cheers. Edition, call 604-822-61 the Crane Library is looking for student volunteers to record textbooks for those who cannot use print at the university. If you are a UBC student who is computer
1: literate with an ability to read university material aloud and you have a willingness to learn new techniques, we ask for a two-hour commitment once a week. For additional information and to set up an edition, call 604-822-6114 or email crane.volunteer at ubc.ca.
0: So, you know, when it comes to dark comedy, Before We Go seems like, because Sebastian, like I said, he was telling me about this earlier. And the trailer for Before We Go, like seriously, if you can find it on social media, it is really funny.
1: I'll have to check it out. That yeah. sounds really cool.
0: Um, so, The Ridiculous Darkness, for what it's worth, I want to start off by saying it's an, ada- it's an adaptation of a German radio play by Wolfram Lotz. And it's about, that, that is in turn adaptation of Apocalypse Now which is in turn an adaptation of Heart of Darkness influenced by T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men*, which was itself influenced by Heart of Darkness. So, degrees of adaptation, you have a semi-cabaret show in Vancouver, influenced by a radio play written by a German, based off a film made by an American in the Philippines, in turn drawing inspiration from an English poem and, a po- and an Anglo-Polish novelist, who in turn inspired that poem.
1: Wow, that's um...
0: so we've got some deeply postmodern stuff here, um, and uh, um, I did not care for it. Uh, oh no, no. Uh, so this is the thing about this. I really wanted to tee off on this after I saw it. It wouldn't be fair for me to do that because this is a variety show. It's a variety show that is a really good variety show, by the way. Using uh, there's a powwow crew that comes in. There's a Japanese taika uh, drumming group. Like It's it's three girls and their grandfather. Oh, my and God. I love it. A, a, a youth choir, an adorable youth, the Richmond Youth Choir. Oh, they were so cute. They reminded me of my niece. But um, the thing is, this is supposed to be a very Vancouver production.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so the adaptation uh, of this source was kind of wrong-footed for that. The tone of this thing is so erratic and so difficult to pin on. And the text is really... Well, for one thing, the text of this scene corrupt is as all, as all bloody. It, it did not come across like it had a coherent message. And I suspect part of that might have been adapting it to the stage. Because the author... This is one of the ones where the author's a character. Yeah. Shows up and uh, says... It's him typing... Changes for staging are not only uh, allowed but encouraged or something to that effect. And I thought, okay, that's a good start. That's a good metafictional start. And there's an interesting story. The story that starts it is a story of a Somali pirate. And the joke is that he went to University of Mogadishu for piracy and, uh, he and his friend attempt to raid a boat and he's put on trial. That starts and ends the show. It bookends the show because the friend shows up later. Has no bearing on anything else.
1: That is very weird.
0: Yeah, so that would be odd. And the actual story is uh, two people going up the Hindu Kush. Which is a mountain range, not a river. That's a joke, actually. They do make that joke, because they, they have to go up the river in Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness. Yeah. But the Hindu Kush is a mountain range, not a river. But it's it's resetting that in Afghanistan. It's Germans, not Americans or Englishmen. Okay. In search of this Colonel Kurtz-type character named, if you'll correct if you'll excuse my sight reading. The, the man searching, the sort of Willard figure, is Pellner, And his... Um, his sidekick, too. And Pounder's distinguished by this sort of military vest. He wears his sidekick, distinguished by a life jacket. And the Kurtz character they're in search of is only shows up towards the end. Uh, he's very good, by the way. Uh, th- and here's the thing. The various actors in this were playing different characters. Um... The, the, uh what is it? The character's name is, sorry, I, I'm trying to read my handwriting. It is weird. Dutinger, I believe, is. The, no, 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 Dutinger's the sidekick. Nope, nope, nope. The, the, uh, the the uh, German, because the, the man who wrote this is German, right? Okay, yeah. Or is it just Dutinger the sidekick? See, this is the thing. I can't tell, for most of this, despite this fairly simple premise, it was hard to tell what was going on. A lot of the time. Part of this was that this is uber Brechtian staging. Another thing is that all of the actors played the different characters by switching props. Okay, that's a good idea. That's a better idea when you have the character, the actors modulate or change the way they're speaking somewhat. So, this was a super Brechtian and super awkward thing. Like For example, the guy who starts off as Pelner was the best Pellner for the parody, I think. But, the... The character keeps changing so much, and it's very disorienting because the characters who introduce the review shows, including the sort of Kurtz character they're looking after, are only played by one person in full costume. So, that's weird. Um, But this is the thing. I came into the show with a mild headache, and by the second act, it felt like someone was driving the head of an axe into my frontal lobe, and here's why. Um, Not only was it incredibly disorienting, the first act ends with... Uh, a, a parody of Rockstar by Pink. Um, fine enough, but the parody is in favor of uh, East East van street vendors, East Hastings street vendors. Okay, uh, who actually come on to stage to sell their wares to the audience if, if, during the intermission. Um, this is an interesting move, uh, and this is the thing about that. I this is takes place right after this kind of climactic and horrific, really interesting bit about the disabled because there are actually disabled actors in this there's an ensemble of people who have actual disabilities and that was really deeply disturbing but also it fit the tone that was a powerful moment on stage and it worked after this that act is closed by a parody of rockstar by pink asking you to buy woodcuts or wood at etch- prints of some grab blocks of wood from street vendors who have rolled into the theater, and um, when, when this happened, like, my jaw was on the floor because I understand where you're aiming at. If you want mood whiplash, if you're aiming at a straight Brechtian play, Brechtian. Like, I can never pronounce his name. But, but here's the thing about Brecht that works and continued to work. Brecht did not expect you to empathize with his characters. Mm -hmm. Nor did Brecht ever – and to this thing's estimable credit, they seldom did. But this wasn't terribly consistent and you were never terribly certain where the moral focus of the play was because it was all over the place. And this is the thing. The play is itself – the original source material – is like It was written in 2010 about a commentary of things that would have been re- relevant throughout the early 2000s, the American impact on a lot of foreign discourse, the Bush administration's action in the Middle East, that sort of thing. The impact of that when it comes to discussions of race, colonialism, what have you, it's a relevant discourse. It is a relevant discourse, I would mean say. In Vancouver, there are topics of race and colonialism to be approached. There's the Japanese internment. There's the shadow of residential schools. There are a series of very ugly things that have happened. This play points that out. This production points that out. And as a production about Vancouver, it can't decide whether it's trying to be a cry for social change or a cabaret show celebrating what's happened in the city anyway. And it does not settle on one. It's extremely confusing. It's d- extremely difficult to watch. And the, the variety show moments with the Tiger crew, the powwow crew, the youth choir, they are the best part of it because they're the only points in this murky, horribly misguided, but tactily like very deeply felt and produced production that seem to make sense. That seem to actually come clear and say something that is not only sensible, but is relates to the audience that actually works. This, the, Probably the best word for this is dysfunctional. Mm. It, it, it just, it's, I don't want to say incompetent, but it doesn't work. It, it, it's less than the sum of its parts. And a lot of the time, it's its honestly the professional aspects of the production let it down the most. And that's, that's that, for something that is in its heart of a variety show, for something that is trying to, co- to bring these things together and to, cha- to go down this chain of adaptation, it does not work. So I, I can't recommend it. Oh, man. I was I, looking forward to it, too. Well, I can I, – you know what? Actually, let, let, let me think about that. <laughs> Before I end the show, because I really don't – like I said, I don't like teeing off on something bottomlessly. But you know what? If you're if, – if you have a great stomach for um, – like if you could read Heart of Darkness – without it screwing up your day you know what you'll be able to stomach this if you're able to watch apocalypse now without you know some some pretty horrifying questions about other things you'll be able to stomach this um but that's not the point point. Mm. and the, the thing is that because that's not the point the problems in this don't address it don't address themselves and i i so when it comes down to that the thing, only thing I can recommend this is if you want to see a variety show and you don't really care how it gets delivered, you'll get your money's worth because it is a very good variety show. But yeah, that's the ridiculous darkness. That was my read on it, and I, I suspect I may be in a critical minority when that uh, when that comes about. But I couldn't I I, I couldn't really tolerate much of the show. Mm. I I respect I, I respected what it was trying to do, but it was just very misguided and just didn't did not work on that cheery note that looks like it's our (laughs) show for the day running a little over time um and uh that's us and next week we shall return with more arts club goodness which hopefully will not just be me fumbling through things and teeing off on people um i'm your host jake clark i'm Ileana. and cheers Do you want to go to a party with me? No, the game's on. Oh, I almost forgot. I'll be right there. We like sports and we don't care.